You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. U.S. and British authorities warn of a large-scale GRU campaign, reports of a major cyber attack on German critical infrastructure, Indigo Zebra uses Dropbox in ministry-to-ministry deception aimed at the Afghan government, currently active ransomware groups are profiled, a cyber most wanted, and priorities in a U.S. Treasury campaign against money laundering, Malek Ben Salem looks at supply chain security. Our guest is Brandon Hoffman of Intel 471 with insights on China's data underground. And hey, it's Dimitri from Yorga, longtime listener, first time caller. From the CyberWire Studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, July 1st, 2021. NSA and its U.S. and British partners late this morning released an advisory detailing a Russian campaign they describe as almost certainly ongoing to brute force access to cloud and enterprise environments. The campaign is global in scope, NSA says, but focused on American and European targets. The sectors being prospected for collection or disruption amount to a familiar list. Government and military, defense contractors, energy companies, higher education, logistics companies, law firms, media companies, political consultants or political parties, and think tanks. Attribution is specific. The threat actor is placed on the GRU's org chart as the 85th Main Special Service Center. The advisory summarizes the implications of this campaign. Quote, This brute force capability allows the 85th GTSSS actors to access protected data, including email, and identify valid account credentials. Those credentials may then be used for a variety of purposes— including initial access, persistence, privilege escalation, and defense evasion. The actors have used identified account credentials in conjunction with exploiting publicly known vulnerabilities, such as exploiting Microsoft Exchange servers using CVE-2020-0688 and CVE-2020-17144 for remote code execution and further access to target networks. After gaining remote access, many well-known tactics, techniques, and procedures are combined 
to move laterally, evade defenses, and collect additional information within target networks. While brute forcing isn't new, the GTSSS's approach is, it's uniquely leveraged software containers to easily scale its brute force attempts. The advisory comes with indicators of compromise, and NSA urges Department of Defense, National Security Systems, and Defense Industrial-Based System Administrators to immediately review them and apply the recommended mitigations. Responding to a screamer in German tabloid newspaper Bild about a massive Russian cyber attack on German infrastructure, the country's Federal Information Security Service, the BSI, says it never happened. Instead, some criminal activity was thwarted, Bloomberg and Gollum report. Bild had cited unnamed Western intelligence services as its sources and variously named the purported Russian threat actor as Fancy Bear and Fancy Lazarus, The outlet also associated the attack that wasn't with tensions arising over Belarus and the airliner it forced down so it could take a dissident into custody. If you believe the NSA, the NCSC, the Secret Service, and the FBI, the GRU has certainly been up to no good in European and North American networks, but this case doesn't appear to be one of those misdeeds. It was apparently an ordinary and not particularly successful attempt at cybercrime. Researchers at Checkpoint have observed a Chinese-speaking threat group tracked as Indigo Zebra engaged in a long-running cyber espionage campaign against the Afghan government. Indigo Zebra used Dropbox to gain access to the Afghan National Security Council and then used that position to fish their way further into the government. The goal is to access desktop files, deploy scanner tools, and execute Windows built-in networking utility tools. The Hill reports the checkpoint is struck by Indigo Zebra's effective use of ministry-to-ministry deception, since the messages staged through Dropbox appear to originate at the highest levels of government. The latest targets may be in Afghanistan, but Indigo Zebra has, according to Checkpoint, long shown an interest in Central Asian governments since at least 2014, pursuing targets in Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan. Security firm Domain Tools has published a useful guide to the most common ransomware operations presently active. The accounts of the individual gangs and their tools are interesting, but so is the overarching warning Domain Tools offers up front. Quote, All of these groups make alliances, share tools, and sell access to one another. Nothing in this space is static, and even though there is a single piece of software behind a set of intrusions, there are likely several different operators using that same piece of ransomware that will tweak its operations to their designs. Among the more prolific, rapacious, and successful ransomware-as-a-service operations out there is R-Evil, AT&T's Alien Labs, working from a tip it received from the malware hunting team, has been tracking new samples that indicate the gang's expansion into new fields of activity. R-Evil has hitherto concentrated on attacking Windows machines, but Alien Labs has confirmed with at least four samples that R-Evil has branched out into the Linux world. In this, R-Evil is following the lead of other ransomware outfits, notably Darkseid. The first confirmed R-Evil activity against Linux systems appears to date to this past May. The U.S. Secret Service has revived its most wanted list of suspected cyber criminals. 
As suits, say, remit narrower than the FBI's, the Secret Service's list is confined to cases of financial fraud under investigation by its cyber fraud task forces. They welcome tips. If you've got any, you can email them at mostwanted at usss.dhs.gov. Two of the wanted come with a million-dollar reward for information leading to arrest and conviction. In a related development, the U.S. Treasury Department has published a revised set of anti-money laundering guidelines, the Wall Street Journal reports. The department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network yesterday gave cybercrime a prominent place among its priorities. FinSED said, quote, The priorities identify and describe the most significant AML-CFT threats currently facing the United States. In no particular order, these include corruption, cybercrime, domestic and international terrorist financing, fraud, transnational criminal organizations, drug trafficking organizations, human trafficking and human smuggling, and proliferation financing. End quote. Finally, in the It's Dmitry from Yurga, longtime listener, first-time caller department, Russia's President Putin seemed this week to engage in a bit of security theater, principally for domestic consumption, His annual four-hour call-in TV show, a kind of ask-me-anything session with Russian citizens on the state-run Rossiya 24 network, featured a caller from the southwestern Siberian region of Kuzbas who complained, Our digital systems are right now facing attacks, powerful DDoS attacks. The president replied, Are you joking? Seriously. Turns out we have hackers in Kuzbas. Security Week says that the large Russian telco Rostelecom confirmed that unknown parties were indeed conducting cyber attacks and that steps were being taken to block these illegitimate activities. No attribution was offered, but hey, give them a call. Maybe by now, the phone lines are open. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. 
That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Researchers at Intel 471 recently looked into the sale of data sets in online dark web forums by Chinese insiders with access to big data sets. Brandon Hoffman is Chief Information Security Officer at Intel 471, and he joins us with their findings. Yeah, so what's happening essentially is, let's just take, for example, a service provider. Right, A service provider has a lot of data about uh, individuals, a lot of data about what they do on the on the internet and probably personal information. This data gets aggregated and there's legitimate reasons, even here in the U.S. and across other parts of the world where uh, people aggregate this data and they sell packages uh, to advertising and marketing firms and they broker this data out for legitimate purposes. Uh, but what's happening here essentially is there's somebody who who's kind of running maybe a, a syndicate or a group uh, that deals with uh, selling this type of data or derivatives of this data for nefarious purposes. They enlist somebody like an insider or potentially you know, a threat actor, maybe a hacker, if you want to use that term, to go mm-hmm. and gather up this data, uh, extract you know, large sets of information. Um, then they push that data through middlemen, um, on the cybercrime underground, or what some people will say, maybe the dark web. We don't really use that term. And they sell that to uh, threat actors who want that data, who are running scams. Maybe it's a phishing scam, could be a malware campaign um, to target specific type, uh, specific people. So essentially, just to cover the process very quickly, you know, somebody, there's a group of people who deal in selling this type of data, they'll go and enlist somebody to get a set of information that they want from, let's say, like a service provider who has a giant data lake of information. They extract the pieces they want. They push it through a middleman to the actual threat actors who will monetize that data through a variety of different types of scams. And is this primarily Chinese organizations focusing on the data of other Chinese nationals, or are they... Is uh, you know is our data from other people around the world? Is that being uh, looped into this as well? Yeah, I mean, in the, in the specific example of the research we're doing, this is all pretty well contained. Uh, I think there is data, probably you know, there because of the advent of you know the, the Chinese technology, uh, as you would say, diaspora, you know, across the world. Yeah. You know, certainly there is some data from outside of China in there, and. It's very, very likely that this is taking place, this same scenario is be- taking place in other parts of the world. But in this particular report, in this case, uh, it was focused almost completely on inside of China. It's an interesting time to have a report like this because at least with a lot of people I talk to, you know, the notion of all the data being gathered on us as individuals and what it's being used for, how it's being monetized, even legally it seemed to causing be causing a lot of heartburn, you know, with many people, even in the lay public, right? And uh, mm-hmm. so it's interesting to see this report come to light that not only is it u- used for legal profiteering, but also illegal profiteering. Really doesn't come as a surprise to most of us, but um, it's just kind of interesting timing, I guess is all I'll say. Yeah, when it's sort of laid bare there, you know, uh, 
<laughs> I guess it confirms a lot of people's suspicions. One more bit of data uh, to, to put in your, your bin. Yeah, I guess it kind of follows the old adage that nothing in life really is free, right? So <laughs> that's right. That's you're right. You're one way or the other. <laughs> that's Brandon Hoffman from Intel 471. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Malek Ben-Salem. She is the Technology Research Director for Security at Accenture. It is always great to have you back. Um, I wanted to talk to you today about some work that I know you and your team have been uh, focusing on. And this is the remediation of vulnerabilities, but using artificial intelligence. What can you share with us today? Yeah, so uh, we noticed that a lot of our clients are struggling with remediating uh, vulnerabilities that are uh, found through the different application security uh, tests that they perform. Uh, we know that application development teams are responding just to the highly critical vulnerabilities that are found through these tests and that they cannot find the time to uh, remediate all of the vulnerabilities. So we wanted to assist them and um, look at the use of machine learning uh, and AI in general to help them with this task. Uh, we've uh, worked with uh, one of our clients uh, and we've taken basically all of their the vulnerabilities in their environment and identified you know, the most frequent ones and started looking at how can we automatically generate um, and suggest remediated code for them so that the development teams can and, take the remediated code and just review it and apply it or include it in their code. Hmm. And that has, you know, that went pretty well. Um, so uh, we've been working at this for a few months now and, you know, we've performed a field test with this client and uh, we found that we're able, or the AI is able to automatically remediate 60% of the vulnerabilities, of the Java vulnerabilities, within their environment, just using a few of the AI models. Uh, so this was very encouraging for us. Uh, I think what we will do is expand that to other Java vulnerabilities and uh, expanding that uh, AI also to handle uh, vulnerabilities in other uh, programming languages as well. Is, is there an adjustment period that developers have to go through when interacting with a system like this? Like, I mean, I can imagine uh, folks, uh, you know, not, not naturally responding in a generous way when an AI tells them that uh, they need to make some adjustments to their code. 
Yes, uh, absolutely. I think deploying something like this within uh, within a development environment uh, will take some adjustment time, which is why we've taken a phased approach to this. Uh, in our first field test, what we've done is um, generate these suggested auto-remediations and, and, and send them to the application development team so that they can review them and then that they can gain basically trust into uh, the AI uh, and, and its recommendations. Um, and the response we've received is outstanding. They, they, all the application teams that we've been working with have been thrilled um, to, to get these uh, remediations because they save them a lot of time. I think as more confidence is gained, as, as more trust is gained into these recommendations uh, generated by our AI system, uh, we can move on into automatically deploying uh, these remediations and uh, integrating them with, with with the code so that we can perform the unit tests and move on with the uh, well, with the development pipeline. Um, so, uh, yes, I think it takes time, um, but so far the response we've received is is great. Um, uh, some of our metrics uh, show that just generating these remediations um, save the, the development teams two hours per vulnerability. Hmm. So, you know, that time researching what is the vulnerability about and how can I remediate it, etc., so it wow. saves them, yeah, per vulnerability. That that is amazing, knowing that, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of vulnerabilities that these application teams have to deal with. Uh, that's huge, um, and automatically deploying the remediation to the code that will save five hours of development of developer and tester time. So there, there are even more savings to be gained uh, if this entire process can be completely automated. So where do you suppose this is heading? I mean, what, what's the, I guess I'm trying to imagine the, the point of equilibrium. When this is up and running, ideally, what do you have in your mind's eye? Well, when this is up and running, I think this will save uh, development time so that uh, the developers can really focus on what they do best, right, and what's generating more value for, for the company, which is, you know, developing code and, and working on their applications as opposed to running around fixing vulnerabilities. So mm. that is the purpose. Uh, and also, by the AI generating these, um, you know, remediations for the developers in code, we our intent is that they they will learn right by looking at these you know the right code or the non-vulnerable code they will learn the way to write code in a secure manner so over time not only are we fixing vulnerabilities but we're also teaching the developers on how to write secure code mm -hmm. and then the proper code goes in their their library goes into their bag of tricks exactly yeah Absolutely. yeah yeah, fascinating stuff. All right, well, Malek Ben Salem, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. 
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.